are by nature God's enemies. Every man, every woman, by nature, as we are born apart from the intervening grace of God, we are God's enemies. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom begins a brand new six-part series called He Himself is Our Peace. Tom will be teaching through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. You might have heard the phrase, no justice, no peace, or give peace a chance. But too often, life is marked more by conflict, hostility, and alienation than by peace. And it may or may not surprise you to learn that hostility and alienation occur between every human being and God Himself. What is the basis of that? Is not God the God of love? Well, through this series, you'll discover the origins and depth of the separation between God and man, the nature and history of hostilities, as well as the wonderful reconciliation that Christ Himself has brought about. Now, before we begin, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. Tom? To really appreciate the reconciliation that's ours in Christ, you first have to understand that we were needing to be reconciled, that we actually were at odds with each other, that we were hostile to one another. That's true from our standpoint. We resent God's authority in our lives. We, we are hostile toward Him, the Scripture says. At the same time, because of that, God, as a just and righteous king and judge, is hostile toward those who were rebelling against him, while at the same time loving them and looking for ways to reconcile them to himself. That's the enigma that is the gospel. And God found a way through his son to overcome that hostility and to make us his own. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now. Let's join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. We're looking together at Ephesians chapter 2, and particularly we're looking at the paragraph that begins in verse 11 of chapter 2 and runs all the way through the end of the chapter. The first 10 verses are intensely personal. They record how it is that individual sinners have been rescued by God. But verses 11 through 22 are more corporate in their focus. They look at Christ's work not only as it affects the individual, but as Christ's work brings each individual into unity with the rest of the people of God, regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of those things that seem to divide and make us distinct here in this world. The theme of this paragraph is that all Christians, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, are united together with God and each other in the church through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul is very concerned to make sure the Christians in Ephesus and that we understand this truth. And he develops this theme in three distinct sections as he works his way through this paragraph. Verses 11 through 13 we find out about the reality of this union. In verses 14 through 18, the reason for the union. And in verses 19 to 22, the results of the union. 
Last time we examined verses 11 through 13, the reality of the union. He begins by saying, therefore, remember, verse 11. He says, I want you to keep two great realities about your relationship to God and your relationship to others at the very forefront of your thinking. I want you to remember your past disconnect from God and from his people. In verses 11 and 12, he reminds us that there was a time when we were totally disconnected from God and we were totally distanced from his elect and chosen people. We were without Christ, outside of Israel, without the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God. He also says, I want you to remember as you think about your past, I want you to remember your present union with God and his people. The past was a disconnect, but now you have been united together. There is the reality of a union, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, we who formerly were far off have been brought near. Now we Gentiles have the Messiah. We are heirs of the covenants of promise. We have hope, and the God of Israel is our God. Remember the reality of this union that has taken place. We are connected to God, and we are connected to His true people. Today we come to the second section, verses 14 through 18, the reason for the union, the cause, if you will, of the union, what lies behind this union that has been created. Verses 14 through 18, let me read them for you. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This is a very challenging and difficult section, as you can see even as I read it. But it is so important to the Apostle Paul's argument. This section, those verses I just read for you, are really at the heart and soul of this entire letter. I just want to introduce you to these verses. I want you to get the big picture. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take them apart, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. If I were to summarize these five verses in one word, it would be a very important biblical word. The word itself occurs down in verse 16. It's the word reconcile. While the word reconcile doesn't occur in every verse, the concept of reconciliation permeates every word of this entire section that I just read to you. We need reconciliation. What is the opposite of reconciliation? What creates the need for reconciliation? The antonyms of reconciliation or to reconcile would be alienation, enmity, hostility. Alienation and hostility are part of life in a fallen world. If you don't believe that, pick up the newspaper, look in your extended family or perhaps in your immediate family. This alienation and hostility is true horizontally. That is, it is true between man and man. We see this in our individual lives. We see this in nations. 
We see this throughout the history of mankind. But alienation and hostility are also true, not only horizontally as we live and interact with others, but they are also true vertically. There is hostility and alienation between every human being and God by nature. But this is the wonderful thing about what Christ has done. He brings reconciliation, both horizontally and vertically. He unites. He brings people together with each other, and He brings us together with God. That's what Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 18 describes, and it does so with great theological depth and precision. But today, I want you to consider with me what has made that reconciliation with other human beings and with God possible. Paul tells us in one simple expression at the beginning of verse 14. Here it is in a nutshell. Here's why we can be reconciled. The end of alienation, the end of hostility, for He Himself is our peace. It's a profound statement and one you ought to memorize, think about, meditate on, for He Himself is our peace. The word for takes us back to verse 13. God has brought all of those who believe near to Him and therefore near to each other. He's created this union. And how did He do it? How did God accomplish this union of us with Him and of us with each other? For, because, here's how, He Himself is our peace. Now, notice the change in pronouns that happens here in verse 14. If you look at verses 11 through 13, Paul repeatedly uses the second person plural pronoun, you, you, over and over again. Verse 12, you were at that time separate. Verse 13, but now you who were formerly far off, but in verse 14, he begins, for he himself is our peace. Paul includes himself and every other Christian in this monumental statement. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, whatever other distinctions there may be, if you're in Christ, this is true of you. He himself is our peace. Now, what did Paul mean? Why do we need peace? For just a few minutes, I want you to think with me and consider two very simple truths that flow out of that powerful sentence. Two very simple truths that lie behind the statement, He Himself is our peace. Truth number one, God is at war with every sinner. God is at war with every sinner. That's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? I mean, we don't think of God like that. We don't think of ourselves like that. But that's the universal testimony of the Scripture. Immediately when sin came into the world, there was alienation and hostility. You remember, if you're familiar with the Christian faith at all, if you've been in the church any time at all, you remember the story from the Garden of Eden, how that God Himself and the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, would come in the cool of the day, the Scripture says, and walk through the garden with Adam and Eve. Perfect fellowship, perfect communion. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin, when they chose to eat of the tree that had been forbidden them as a test of their willingness to obey, immediately something happened. 
immediately there was hostility, there was alienation. What was the very first thing Adam and Eve did when the Son of God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day? They hide themselves, and we've been hiding ever since. We are, by nature, God's enemies. Every man, every woman, by nature, as we are born apart from the intervening grace of God, we are God's enemies. As rebellious sinners against His law that's written on our hearts, our consciences constantly accuse us and remind us that we have set ourselves against Him. We put other gods in His place. We worship idols, whether literal stone idols or the idols of the heart, things that become more important to us than loving and obeying God. We have made ourselves God's enemies. James puts it like this, the half-brother of our Lord. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When the U.S. entered World War II and allied itself with Britain, we immediately became the enemy of all of those who were fighting against the Allies. Simply by joining ourselves to Britain, we became the enemy of everyone who was fighting Britain. That's what James is saying here. In the same way, James says that when you choose the world as your friend, when you choose to pursue the lust of your flesh, when you choose to pursue the lust of the eyes, when you choose to pursue the boastful pride of life, then you have made yourself by default the friend of the world and by default the enemy of God. So man is clearly hostile to God. But listen, there's a greater problem. The biggest problem is not that you are hostile to God or that I am hostile to God. The bigger problem is that God is hostile toward us. It's not something we like to think about, but that's what the Scriptures teach. God is at war with us. That's an interesting expression. You know, we use it in reference to countries. When we say they're at war, usually something happens before they actually are at war. Usually one of the countries will break off its diplomatic ties, will close its embassy in the opposing country, but even when that happens, they're still not technically in a state of war. Something else has to happen first. One of the countries has to declare war or commit an act of war against the other country. Only then are the two countries technically at war. And the Scriptures teach that this is the situation between God and us. God has formally declared war against us, against every sinner. Turn to Psalm 7. I want you to see this because it's hard for us to really grasp this. This is what the Bible teaches. Here David writes about this reality. Verse 8 of Psalm 7, The Lord judges the peoples, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. So here you have this dichotomy. There's the righteous and the wicked. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. So God rescues those who are righteous. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation 
every day. So God rescues the righteous. He is angry with the wicked every day as well. In Isaiah, Isaiah makes this image very clear. Isaiah 42, he describes God as a warrior against his enemies. Isaiah 42, not only will he bring, verse 3, salvation to the weak and the, the repentant heart, but he'll also come as judge. Verse 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. You get the picture behind this verse? Jesus Christ will bring the message of salvation, but there will come a day in which he will launch an assault against his enemies. Those who have not received him, those who have not accepted the message of peace. Verse 14, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. Here is a description of the coming judge, Jesus Christ, as he becomes a warrior battling his enemies. Paul makes the same point, but in different language. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Romans 2.5, because of your stubborn and rebellious heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Perhaps the best summary of all that I'm saying to you is found in Romans 5. Romans 5, notice verse 10. We were enemies. That's God's perspective. We were His enemies enemies before we came to faith in Christ. God is at war with every unbeliever. He's already declared war, and someday he will begin the hostilities for real. That's implied in that wonderful statement, for he himself is our peace. The reason we need peace is because God is at war. That's not talking about some subjective feeling you feel in your heart. It's talking about an objective state of peace, the cessation of hostilities. If there's the cessation of hostilities, that means before there was war. And that's exactly what the Bible describes. So, God is at war with every sinner. The second truth, the wonderful truth that really is the heart of this statement, is that in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. In Christ, we can be reconciled to God. We desperately need reconciliation. We need peace with God. God realized this, and because God is a God of love as well as a God of wrath and anger against sin, He begins to promise in the Old Testament that He's going to send someone who will bring the end of the war, someone who will bring peace. You remember he begins to announce him that way in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What does he say about him? He is the prince of peace. He is the prince whose reign will be characterized not by war, but by 
peace. Most earthly rulers seek to make a name for themselves in war, but the Messiah will establish his kingdom in peace. Turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. We quote this passage often at Christmas time in reference to Christ, but we don't read the whole passage. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, speaks of where Christ would be born. But as for you, Bethlehem, Euphrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, where he would be born. Notice verse 4. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So even in the Old Testament, you begin to see the promise that God is going to send someone to reconcile himself to us, to bring peace where there is hostility, to bring truce where there is war. And when Christ came, it quickly became evident that he was the one that had been promised that would bring peace. You see it even at the announcement of his birth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. You remember, suddenly there appeared with the angel there with the shepherds a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men. This was a proclamation that peace with God is available to all men and all women, that this child would procure peace with God, the end of the war. He will secure that peace, notice, for all of those who are truly his subjects, peace among men with whom he is pleased. You see, when the angels pronounced peace on earth, they weren't primarily talking about world peace, although someday that will come under the reign of Christ. They were talking about a very personal, individual application of peace that grows out of a firsthand knowledge of the Prince of Peace. You know the Prince of Peace. You bow to Him, and you have peace with God. This is the message of the gospel. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. That's why in chapter 6, verse 15, it's called the gospel of peace. The good news that there can be peace with God. The war can be over. Peter, when he brought the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, said the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, that is the word Jesus sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This is at the heart of the gospel. This reconciliation. Now turn back to Ephesians 2 and look at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace. Notice that Christ doesn't just make peace or bring peace, although he does that. He is our peace. In his person, Jesus is peace for us with God. Peace with God is a person, Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is on the fact that in his own person, Jesus has reconciled us to God. He's the one who brings reconciliation to human relationships. He's the only one who can bring reconciliation between us and God. Isaiah 53, 5, we looked at a number of weeks ago now, says the chastening 
to secure our well-being. You remember what that word well-being is? It's the word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. The chastening to secure our peace fell on Him on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace. Paul's point is that Christ is the basis of true reconciliation, peace with God. The war is over for those whom God has rescued. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled, He Himself is Our Peace. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.